Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. And we are thrilled to be joined today by two guests who have done really amazing work in Asia in the nonprofit arena, Dr. Kristen Lord and Tina Shabika. Kristen is the president and CEO of IREX, an independent nonprofit focused on empowering youth, cultivating leaders, and extending access to quality education and information. She has also previously held leadership positions at the Center for New American Security and the United States Institute for Peace. Additionally, Kristen previously served as special advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs from 2005 to 2006, and we've had the pleasure of knowing each other for a long time. It's great that you're here today, and Tina, it's great that you're here today. So yes, in addition to Kristen, we are so glad to have Tina Shabaka also joining us here in our studio. Tina is the executive director of Read Global, an incredible grassroots organization devoted to creating centers which serve as information technology hubs. You're going to explain what that means. Community gathering spots and training sites in India, Nepal, Bhutan. Uh, Kristen, Tina, welcome Tea Leaves, and we're thrilled to have both of you in the studio today. Yeah, it's great that you're here. And I've I've had the pleasure of seeing you both in India, actually. Uh, and I just wonder for our listeners, maybe uh, you both could give us some background about IREX and about Reed, and then we'll kind of dive into your work together in, in Asia. Sure. Thanks, Rich. And thanks, Kurt. It's so great to be here and to see you both again. So let me just tell you a little bit about IREX and our partnership to put this whole conversation in context. IREX is a 50-year-old organization. We're a nonprofit organization that promotes more just, prosperous, and inclusive societies around the world. And our goal is to do this by investing in people. We invest in people and the conditions that help them to thrive. And it's that focus that really led us to the partnership with Reed. And I think you'll hear about their incredibly impressive approach to building community cohesion, women's empowerment, local education. We really felt that we could play a role in helping their model to reach much more people. Uh, IREX is a much larger organization than Reed. We work in more than 100 countries around the world. Wow. Uh, we have more than 400 employees and about a $90 million a year portfolio. So we felt we had the bench of talent, the measurement and evaluation capabilities, and just the infrastructure that would help bring this incredibly impressive model to scale. And we're very grateful to the Gates Foundation um, because they're the ones who really played the matchmaker in this partnership. Both of our organizations have worked with the Gates Foundation. And actually, that was the seed of this uh, pretty unique connected. joint venture. Yeah, got it. that's great. Tina, you want to tell us about REED? Sure. So REED actually stands for Rural Education and Development, which I always um, point out initially because a lot of people think we're a reading and literacy organization where that's actually just a small part of what we do. Um, so we've been around since 1991. We started our work in Nepal and then with the support of the Gates Foundation expanded into India and then Bhutan. And our model is working really closely with rural communities in those countries to establish what we call read centers, which are community library and resource centers that are owned and managed by the community. That's a really important part of our model. Um, they co-invest to actually help these things get launched. And then the center actually serves as a hub of all different types of community development activities. A lot of the work happens through partnerships very strong focus on empowerment of women because what we've seen over the years is that 
because a center is actually a library at its core, it's seen as a safe, respectable space. There's no question that a woman should be allowed to go there. She can always get permission. And then it allows her to access all different types of programs and services, find a support network, um, you know, maybe learn how to read for the first time, get access to microcredit, health programs. And when the women become empowered, it really changes the community a lot yeah. more quickly. It's amazing partnership. And uh, there's so much I want to ask you about how you're kind of working together each day in Nepal and India, Bhutan. I want to take one step back and just, um, I don't want to get too political, but I just want to ask you about the role that governments play in your work and this kind of stress upon foreign assistance funding. Has that had a big impact on your work? I know we've seen State Department and USAID budgets slashed. Um, so I want to ask you about that. And I also just maybe, again, What's your message to taxpayers, Americans, others, or you know, who have to support foreign assistance budgets? Uh, why is this? Why is this important? So IREX has a lot of experience partnering with the State Department, with USAID, with Millennium Challenge Corporation, and other government aid organizations around the world. Interestingly, Reed has never taken a dollar from a government source. Oh, wow. um, and yeah. one of the reasons that we're at IREX so attracted to the model is because it's actually locally financed. There's an initial investment that has to occur, but the centers, even in very poor and rural communities, develop their own revenue generating activities. They lead the centers. They have their own elected management committees. They have their own staff. And so we typically see that the Reed centers are providing all these services to a whole community and they're financially self-sustaining for their core operating costs after about two to three years. Mm. And so from my perspective, as someone who's not coming out of the development NGO sector, but is more a foreign policy strategist, I look and see there are huge pressures on aid budgets around the world, both for domestic political reasons and also because they're being so stressed by humanitarian uh, disasters, natural disasters. It's really absorbing the money that used to go into the kind of transformative development that elevates people out of poverty and makes them able to be resistant to, to natural disasters and other crises. So for me at IREX, what is so exciting is to help bring this model to more people, because not only is it a sustainable and effective way to benefit real people's lives from a policy standpoint, from a business standpoint, from a supply chain standpoint, it's also a way to set in motion some things that benefit all of these organizations in a way that perpetuates itself rather than requiring constant external intervention or financing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kristen, thank you. That's very clear. I want to ask you and then and then Tina a question. So Kristen, uh, you know, your recent article in uh, Chronicle of Philanthropy has gotten a lot of attention, you know, questioning certain aspects of humanitarian assistance and whether that creates uh, unhealthy cycles that in fact are more impoverishing over time. For those of us who are, uh, you know, following debates about effectiveness, what is striking over the last 20 or 25 years is how much our understanding of what works with direct assistance has changed. And, you know, there have been those who've suggested, look, health and others that, you know, education for young girls, safe spaces, there's a whole, you know, kind of thriving literature and debate. I'd be interested, given you've had broad experiences, you suggested in not only foreign policy, but now in assistance, if you had to give people advice about where is the most effective 
sort of means and mechanism to apply resources to, you know, populations in need, broadly defined? How would you do it? Thanks, Kurt. So first of all, what I'll say is that I am all in favor of humanitarian spending to alleviate suffering. We need to do this. It's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It's in our interest. The problem is that that tends to be a Band-Aid. It alleviates the suffering today, but it doesn't actually put in place the resilient communities, the, the le local leaders who are equipped to generate their own resources, their own strategies, their own abilities to mobilize locally to promote their own change. And again, to me, what's so exciting about the Reed model is that this is a model that over 25 years shows that if that cohesion exists, if those Reed centers are there and the communities learn to work together, when they do experience crises, like for instance, the Nepal earthquakes, mm -hmm. um, the local communities themselves f far outpaced international aid actors far outpaced national governments in their ability to respond, in their ability to build schools, in their ability to proactively lay the groundwork for future development. And so if we're always responding to an ever escalating number of crises, we're playing whack-a-mole. But if we're investing in the abilities to, to respond themselves and also to be more resilient, to lead themselves, to generate the resources, that's how we ultimately escape this vicious cycle. Yeah. So Tina, I just, you know, uh, as you know, we decided a few years ago when we established our own, you know, uh, company here, the Asia Group, we wanted to give back to create a little bit of an opportunity to support work that we thought was valuable uh, in Asia and elsewhere. And, uh, you know, under the direction and really the, the vision of Grace Riley Adams, our foundation uh, head, executive director, we you know, started looking at areas that we could make an investment in and make a difference. And it turned out to be really difficult, actually, really hard to find the right kinds of organizations that understood how important sustainability was. I'm, I'm curious, when you go out into the market and you appeal to organizations or individuals, what do you highlight in terms of what distinguishes your work from the work, the good work of others, because we found our initial round of investments, we're proud of everything we've done, but it, it turns out that you really have to make sure that you're working with organizations that really have studied the problem, have applied best practices, and that what you do doesn't just disappear a couple of years later. I think you understand what I'm asking, Tina. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, thank you, Kurt. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of our um, donors nowadays are actually corporations with with foundations, um, but also foundations. And um, a lot of the, the 
the message that seems to resonate with them is this idea that um, a reed center actually is sustainable. Um, you know, sustainability is built into it from the very beginning, and it's sustainable not just because we have the sustaining enterprises, the revenue revenue generating projects, but also because it's community owned and managed. And in in my mind, that's actually what makes it sustainable more so than the revenue. It's that the community owns it; it's theirs. They're ultimately deciding how can it evolve over time to really meet the changing needs of of each community. Um, And I think that funders realize that, you know, it's not a one size fits all model, that that's actually um, not always going to be the most successful long term approach. So we've got a platform that we're creating and that platform can really be used how um, how it can best serve each of the communities. So if it's women's empowerment, that's really a need. And that's a lot of um, companies, especially nowadays, are really focused on skilling for women and women's leadership. And a Reed Center provides a beautiful platform for that. And because it's a platform, it can really be sort of tweaked and and sort of shift over that's, time. That's really smart. Yeah. I, I love yeah. the way you present that as a platform that can mm-hmm. be used as a vehicle to do other things. Rich? Well, well, we've been excited, you know, at the Asia Group to be a partner mm-hmm. with with Reed, and it's been terrific to see you uh, at work in the in the region. Um, has there been any challenges, um, you know, being, you know, two American NGOs, uh, kind of trying to take on this work in, in South Asia in particular? Um, we haven't, I mean, we've been working in South Asia now for 27 years. Um, our teams are all local. Um, so Nepal, India, Bhutan, only locals there. So it actually, it, we haven't faced any sort of resistance, even though our, our headquarters in San Francisco, most of our team is actually they're, they're local and they're based in That's Asia. That's great. Yeah. So just give us a, a sense of how this actually works. So um, take Nepal or, or Bhutan, for example. How do you actually go out and establish a center or talk to the community about what they actually need? Just walk us through how, how this works operationally. And, and, and for those of us like, you know, uh, Bhutan seems, you know, tremendously like, magical and mysterious so like how do you even get there that's you know just like that would be just step one for me so go ahead sure so um as i mentioned earlier you know we have local teams on the ground um they are actually getting a lot of requests throughout the year from communities who have maybe seen a nearby reed center and actually want one for their own community so we're constantly fielding requests and so our team really needs to spend time talking to those community members and figuring out, you know, A, is there really a need there? And then B, is the community really willing to invest their own time and resources and go out and do the fundraising? Are they willing to donate land? There's, there's a quite lengthy process. Um, and so for us, we, we call that community mobilization mm-hmm. um, of really making sure that we've got a critical mass of people in that community that's not just one person who wants to maybe build using, you know, the, the former family home mm-hmm. in a village. There's got to be critical mass of a lot of community members who want this to happen, um, a need for it, and then just really a willingness to put in the time and energy and to do some local fundraising to get it off the ground. And how do you, um, is the initial reaction from people, oh, you want to build a library? We have, you know, there's a library somewhere else. We don't, we don't need that. How do you distinguish what you're trying to do up front to people who may not have ever had such a thing in their community? Yeah. So, so in Nepal, it's a harder question to answer because we're actually, we've been there for so long that a lot of people know what we do and they Mm -hmm. understand why it's not just 
your typical library, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people have actually visited and seen one and understand that there's a lot of different things that are happening. If we're talking about Bhutan, where actually there's no public library infrastructure, there's one public library in the entire country of Bhutan. Um, so when we started working there, there was a lot of education that needed to happen because mm -hmm. I think you know, there wasn't an immediate acknowledgement that in a rural village in Bhutan that a library could actually be useful in doing more than providing books and, you know, literacy programs. So there was definitely a lot of community meetings that needed to happen to explain that this is actually, you know, a platform, that there is so much more that can be happening. We can be meeting so many different community needs. And I think once people realize that it's beyond books and computers, um, they get excited about it. So, t so take us through that then. So you meet with the community, you do the assessment, there's enthusiasm for this, you have some degree of funding available. Um, it, I don't think there's a typical read center, but if there was one and you walk through the front door, what do you find? Yeah. So every center is somewhat different, but we do have sort of um, elements that we try to have in most of the read centers. So you might walk into the library section, which would be what you would traditionally think of as a library section, big room, lots of books, a newspaper section. Then there's usually a separate section that has computers, free public access to the internet. So that's usually between five and 10 computers. Um, there's a children's section. So that would be, you know, children's educational toys, colorful books. Um, usually there's someone there who's reading to the children as well. Tina, is it crowded usually or is it, you know, quiet? I mean, give us They're a not sense. quiet. <laughs> They're not quiet. Yeah. They're not quiet at all, actually. Um, yeah. Usually the library section is a little more quiet because people are usually there reading and doing homework. Um, but there's a lot of activity happening usually when we come into is a Is there usually center. a waiting list or waiting line to get on the computers? Yes. And stuff? The yeah. computers are incredibly yeah. popular. Um, we also have a women's section and that tends to be a very vibrant space as well. So women might be going there to access a loan from the microcredit institution. They might be doing health programs. Sometimes they even see doctors at, at in the women's section. Mm. So they're almost like celebratory. You know, I think of when we walk into a library in the U.S., it's usually a place where you hold your voice down. Mm -hmm. And in a read center, that's not what it's about. It's actually about people connecting with each other and solving their problems. Could, could I jump in here please, a little bit? Please. Because I think coming in as an outsider, I went to my first read center about two and a half years ago now. And now I've been back to different read centers on multiple occasions. And one of the things that struck me coming into the centers is like Tina said, they're very vibrant centers. They have not just children at the computer and reading books and playing musical instruments, not just men um, looking for a job, not just uh, women learning how to open a beauty salon in their house to earn extra income. It's not just men meeting with a local agriculture minister to get tips on what seeds to buy or plant. You know, there are all of these things going on. And the fascinating thing is they really adapt. So as the communities become more advanced and developed, so do the offerings. Mm -hmm. So it might start with a lot of people taking courses on literacy, basic literacy and beekeeping or goat herding. And then you come back two years later and suddenly there are a lot of people learning English, learning more advanced computer skills, learning how to work in an office so they can get a job, getting there are a lot, there's a lot of microfinance. Kristen, I, I want to ask a delicate question here. So, so you know, these are you know wonderful pursuits, all of them. Like all, 
but many of them rub up against politics, right? Um, some of them, you know, uh, are affected by by state policies. So, what what if someone wanted to have a political meeting in a Reed Center? What? How do you handle that? I mean, I I know your your goal here is to keep this in a careful lane, so it doesn't you know, run afoul of, you know, political authorities, but that must be a hard, that must be a hard road to carefully well, follow. Well, Kurt, let me just build on your question. Cause I don't even think you have to have a political meeting. What if you have a group of women who sit down and say they want to um, be educated in a certain area in a certain village that may be um, very provocative and it doesn't have to be a yeah. political party or a political message. So there's some, really some cultural uh, challenges. Okay, so Rich's question is better than mine. Okay. <laughs> that's, been, that's been noted, please. So I'm gonna give my perspective and then I wanna bump to Tina. Um, and Tina can also talk about one of the most striking examples is how the Reed Centers existed and existed successfully during the Maoist rebe uh, revolution in, in Nepal, which I think is an amazing story. But so one of the things that strikes me coming in as an outsider to the Reed Centers is the work that they do with women has not actually created the backlash, the unfortunate backlash that we see in so many other development contexts. You know, a, a dirty secret of international development and women's empowerment is that when men see their wives gaining these skills and they're not getting jobs and they're not being treated differently in a way that alters the, uh, the power imbalance, it actually leads to things like increased gender-based violence at home, resentment. However, because the Reed Centers are so systematic and deliberate about bringing in all members of the community, people from different ethnic groups, people from of different genders, people with different levels of disability or ability, people who uh, may be from more remote or poor parts of the area. We, because they offer something for everyone, it's much more of a win-win circumstance. And because they're driven by the communities themselves, there's not this view that external actors are imposing this. Um, and I think they've done a really masterful job of accomplishing this without the kind of backlash. But maybe Katina can speak a little bit to how they've been able to do it and some of the political issues. It's, it's actually quite fascinating, the relationship they have with local and national governments, which a question we get from development experts is, isn't this competition with political actors and political institutions? But in practice, when you go, you run into people from the local governments all the time because mm. they're finding more take up of their services by working in partnership with the, with the Reed Centers than they do by acting on their own. Yeah. So, so to the question about um, politics. Um, so one of the key parts of our model is that we work with a community to establish what's called a center management committee, which is a group of volunteers, which really represents the entire community, which means it needs to have different political parties, different caste, ethnic groups. Um, a third of it needs to be at least women. At the beginning, we try to have more women as things evolve over time. Um, but it's got to represent the entire community. And so we have had times when political parties maybe wanted to use the Reed Center to have a meeting. They don't let that happen because then that would be sort of using the space and yeah. influencing in a way that's just not, that doesn't work with the whole community. Kristen had mentioned, um, you know, the Maoist. Um, and there was, there was a lot of conflict in Nepal. Um, during that whole period of time, none of the centers were ever targeted. Um, while a lot of government structures were targeted because they were really, because of that center management structure and the diversity of people that was um, represented there, 
these are seen as sort of zones of peace, right? They're neutral spaces. They don't belong to any particular political party or ethnic group or family. It belongs to the entire community. If it belongs to the whole community, you don't want to hurt, you know, something that belongs to the whole community. So it, so go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, can I share a data point that I think illustrates this really mm -hmm. well? No Reed Center has closed in the last 27 years. Oh, that's great. If you're someone who works in this space, that is a staggering fact. And it shows the level of community ownership and inclusion that's there. Mm -hmm. You don't stay open and keep raising the resources and keep generating the volunteerism that's necessary to do this unless you have that mm -hmm. sense of community ownership. And that's what's protecting them from all of these other wins. So, Tina, I'm, look, it's an incredible record of success. But you must have some gradations of success. You must have some countries where you do better than others. And I'd be interested in if you could tell us like where you've struggled and why you think you've struggled and, and where you've succeeded. And have you ever been surprised? Like you thought you'd do well in a certain place and maybe it didn't turn out as well as you'd hoped. Um, so Bhutan is actually a great example of, I think, a country that was a bit surprising because um, being that there was no public library infrastructure there, it just seems so obvious that we should be there because we're, the, we're still the only organization that's establishing libraries in Bhutan. Um, it's a tiny country. The government actually does a lot for its people. Um, and as a result of, of it doing a lot and providing services for free, it's actually been more difficult than we expected it to be to get that sense of community ownership and engagement um, because I think the citizens there are just more used to looking to the government for sort of guidance mm -hmm. on what they should be doing and they're not used to volunteering their time. There's not the sense of activism like we've seen for years in Nepal where I think the people in those communities know that they That's have to do it for themselves, yeah. right? Yeah, it is a spectacular place, though. It is. Oh, yeah. Bhutan or the... Bhutan, yeah. And I. And... You still, no one's still giving me any idea how to get there. <laughs> we're, so. we, we're not going to tell you. Okay. Yeah, right. All right. I'm um, sure the founder of Reed, who runs yeah. a travel company called right. Myths and Mountains, could set you up. Can I ask okay. you a question about uh, technology? Mm -hmm. uh, because we at State and in the, when I worked on the Hill and, you know, worked on assistance programs, technology and development was always a, this huge and important area. And the notion of connecting, you know, remote villages across South Asia uh, is really a high priority for all the governments. And I just wonder how important it is to the Reed Centers to have tech, you know, you know, the thought of having 25 iPads instead of 500 books, for example. I mean, does it just change how you're conveying information, what people are picking up? Get, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this was actually how we, we first started working with IRIX was when we received funding from the Gates Foundation to put um, technology into all of the read centers. And IRIX has expertise in that. So really helping us make that a sustainable program. Um, but it, it's absolutely changed everything. Um, young people especially, but even a lot of the women who are now becoming literate really want to understand how to, how to use the computers, how to access information that they need on the internet. And then all of a sudden it's like, Every day you could be accessing new information rather than books, which are fairly static. Um, and it's also opening up, you know, it's giving people an opportunity to communicate with their families that are in other parts of the world, which is such a huge issue, really in all three countries that we're, we're there in right now. Um, most families have a family member who's living abroad somewhere, um, usually somewhere in the Gulf or maybe Malaysia. Um, 
And this is giving... And that's normally to, to for work and then sending money home. Yes, yeah. remittances, yeah. yes. So it's, you know, it's a huge part of Nepal's economy, for example. And so people haven't been able to really keep in touch with their family members until now. I mean, we were just there in, in November. We walked in and there was a woman video Skyping with her daughter and we're all like waving at her. And her daughter was actually from... She was in San Francisco, um, where I'm from, and she was talking to her mom on the phone in the library. So... It's just, you know, it allows people to stay connected in a way that they just otherwise wouldn't. Can I, I just, I'd be curious, another question about frequency of visits. So if you went to a Reed Center in any one of these countries and you went, you know, for a succession of days, would you see the same people every day or would you see different groups of people and does it become part of a certain group of people's routine mm-hmm. and they have a cup of coffee and go in and is it like a gathering point? And how often do you see new people, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are definitely people who are there almost every day. Um, we have, I know there's an elderly gentleman in one of the centers in Nepal who goes every day to read the paper, right? So there's people like that. And then there's different trainings and programs that are happening throughout the week. So depending on what programs and services are being offered on any given day, you're going to see a lot of new people coming in. So it it's evolving over time. Um, you know, I'd say there's some continuity and then there's always new faces and new things happening. And I would say that children are one of the really frequent users of the centers. I mean, there aren't necessarily safe places for children to go in some of these communities that where they have access to computers and books and games. And so a lot of kids, when I've been there, you see this rush of kids after mm-hmm. school, um, both to play and to investigate, but also to study. You know, not everybody, you know, for instance, in India has electricity in their home where there's light to study. So the Reed centers, they all have solar panels, so there's reliable electricity. Um, and so for people to be able to study for national exams and prepare, like you really see a regular pattern of young people coming in. And I would say the women too. It's a, a, an extremely important gathering point. And some women don't have permission from their husbands to leave their houses for anything except to go to the Reed Center because wow. it's a socially acceptable place to go. It's a place of learning. They're not where it's Internet cafes are socially inappropriate in many places, uh, but the Reed Centers, you know, they do have this acceptance. Let me ask you, um, as we as we wrap up here, uh, a question about, you know, why we do this. And on this show, we, we focus a lot on hard power issues, you know, Chinese military strength and counterproliferation and, um, you know, the clash of, of great power conflict. Um, today we're talking about something at the human level, at the community level. We're talking about women's empowerment. We're talking about literacy. Um, put it in perspective for folks, you know, just like, how does this matter in the way that some of these other kind of, you know, more prominent issues that get the front page of the paper's attention? Why, why do these issues matter and how can they have a difference on security and peace and stability? So Tina and I will probably answer this differently. I'm going to answer with more of a national interest, geopolitical lens. I think they really, it really does matter. Mm-hmm. So for instance, let's take the issue about building markets. Mm-hmm. If we want to build markets for American and other global companies around the world. We actually are expecting and need a lot of growth to come from emerging economies like India, like Nepal. And the more that people are educated, have access to jobs, have access to more income, have access to microfinance, 
the better customers they are going to be for a lot of other companies and, and, uh, and workers around the world. So that's one really tangible reason right there. From a governance perspective, one of the fascinating things about these Freed Centers is they are actually teaching people the habits of self-governance and local governance and dis local decision-making in a way that is organic, in a way that is learned, in a way that is not threatening or political. And if we know that businesses, governments around the world need stability and political stability, helping people learn and develop the habits of cooperation and governance is actually an incredibly mm -hmm. important thing. That's and people point. struggle in the development world to find successful models, and I think this is one. Really good point. And then the last thing I'll mention is, let's not forget the humanitarian element here. Um, let's think about how the improved health outcomes, the improved educational outcomes, how this really improves people's lives. But from a practical standpoint, let's say, this is a, a philanthropic investment that we can make that has lasting effect. So I, I want to do a shout out to the Carlucci family. I know many of your listeners will know the Carluccis. Um, they have made a very generous gift to open a new Reed Center uh, in oh, Nepal. Um, they're wonderful people, wonderful family. And the reason it's appealing to them is because they say, look, this is a way that you can make a one-time investment to have an impact that could last and affect thousands of people for generations. And so if we want want to have that kind of philanthropic, that kind of humanitarian moral impact, this is a, a practical, sustainable model that we know works. That's great. Tina? Yeah. And I mean, Kristen, you're right. I, I sort of look at things a little bit differently or just from a different perspective. But when I think about the inequality that's that's happening in the world and, and really increasing, and especially if you think of um, rural versus urban, and so most of our work is in rural areas, and there is so much more migration into the cities. But the fact is about 70% of the population still lives in rural areas in the countries that we work in. And if we don't do more to address that inequality and increase opportunities in those rural places, we're just going to have a really big problem on our hands. You know, we already have one, uh, but I think it just needs to be addressed. And then just from the perspective of gender, um, for me personally, um, you know, the first time I went to, to Asia, which was about 15 years ago, I was really struck by how different my life was as a young woman in the United States and the opportunities I'd been afforded compared to what it was like to grow up as a girl or a woman in one of these countries in South Asia. And it just, that inequality, I mean, to me, that's one of the biggest crises of our time is yeah. that we're not doing more to address that. And um, that's that's why I do the work I do. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing and for the commitment that you've made. We're thrilled with our partnership with Reed, and we're thrilled that you were able to join us today. So we will continue to follow your progress. I assume if people want to learn more about Reed, they can go to your website, which is? Sure, reedglobal.org. Reedglobal.org. And we're irex.org, I-R-E-X. Okay. Great. And as always, uh, thank you all to our subscribers for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.